Hello, this is Kevin Kersey of the Kevin Kersey Agency. The Kevin Kersey Insurance Agency, a member of the Farmers Insurance Group, can help with home, life, auto, or business needs. Phone number is 317-286-3481. We can also be found on Facebook at the Kevin Kersey Agency or at our website, www.farmersagent.com forward slash kkersey. Walk-ins are always welcome at 480 East Northfield Drive, Suite 300 in Brownsburg. The Kevin Kersey Agency presents Central Indiana Today on WYRZ. Welcome to Central Indiana Today. I'm Shane Ray filling in for Nicole, and I have someone on my phone who has never been here before, but the subject or the reason he's here, you'll be quite familiar with. We're going to introduce him now. His name is Johnny Ray Miller. He has written a book called When We're Singing. And we'll get into more about the book, but first we're going to get to know uh, Johnny a little bit better. How is Johnny today? Hey, pretty good. Nice to be on, Shane. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, the show's called Central Indiana Today. You're not right directly in Indiana. You're kind of on the outskirts, a neighboring state, yeah. shall we say. Where are you at? Yeah, I'm over here in Ohio, actually. Um, and I'm on the opposite side of the state, closer to the border of Pennsylvania, not too far from Pittsburgh. Okay. Now, you have, uh, well, let's, let's get a little bit more information about you. Is that where you grew up? Uh, yeah, I was originally from Canton, Ohio, and we lived there until I was about 9 or 10. And then we moved about 45 minutes east, and I grew up at a place called Guilford Lake. And um, that is where my first fascination with um, the Partridge family uh, came in. I, I guess that that's a good place to, to pick up because uh, the, the book you've written is about the Partridge family. In fact, the official title is When We're Singing the Partridge Family and Their Music. How did that come about? What age are we talking about? Yeah, I was, boy, I was about, yeah, I was 9 or 10 when we moved uh, from Canton. And um, I was always, you know, the Partridge Family was always a show that I really loved when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And the thing that always grabbed me and kept me coming back to that show was the music. Mm -hmm. um, it was something that just, it became my sort of go-to music probably my whole life. Uh, and I, I have a background in the theater. I grew up to work in the theater and uh, went to college at Kent State University and um, began in theater management uh, right after college. And uh, always followed David Cassidy's career. Um, always, you know, back in the 90s, the nostalgia thing was just starting to hit. Mm -hmm. And right before the Internet, it was still kind of hard to keep up on things, you know, oh, yeah. with the Partridge family and shows that you liked. But once that started to change... You know, you got out there and the internet came along and you found all of these avenues, uh, these websites that were putting up things about uh, different things. And the Partridge family had a website um, that that everybody went to. You know, it was a fan who put the website up. It was very well done. And it sort of became a central location and for people who were fans of the Partridge family. And it became just very popular. People were going there. The music was definitely something everyone was always talking about. Mm -hmm. And so as time wore on, uh, we as fans kept saying, when is someone going to write a book about the Partridge family? Uh, 
the Brady Bunch has all these books. Where's the book on the Partridge family? Right. And, and that went on and on. And finally, uh, mid-90s, a guy did, there was a word out that a guy named Joey Green, a writer, was putting out a book on the Partridge family. And it turned out to be an episode guide, which was very popular in the 90s. But it still wasn't a book on... Um, you know, their relationships, their real-life relationships. Um, the uh, there were, They didn't touch on the music at all. Yeah. Uh, and so when is someone going to write something about the music? Um, and we waited and we waited, and uh, as time wore on, I found myself at another theater, uh, and I booked, actually booked David Cassidy for a concert. And um, it went so incredibly well. That's when I kind of got the idea that I thought, well, you know, I have a little bit of a writing background. Why not me? So um, uh, I had David Cassidy in my corner, and he actually wrote the foreword for the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I thought, well, I need Shirley Jones. So I went after Shirley Jones, and um, I thought, if I get her, you know, I'll take it as a sign to keep going forward. So... Sure enough, you know, she said the same thing that the fans were saying, which was, I can't believe somebody hasn't done this before now. And she said, you know, I'll support you in any way I can. And um, I went to her home in Los Angeles, and I interviewed her in person. And uh, she was incredible. Uh, Everything you ever might envision of her, she was. Hmm. Definitely just a class act lady. And um, after that, of course... uh, I would interview the rest of the cast, and it just kind of kept going and going. And before I knew it, I was talking to the original, the real musicians who played on the albums, the background vocalists who actually sang. Shirley Jones and David Cassidy, of course, they really sang, but the rest of the cast lip-synced. And so, you know, these records, this music was really good music. And so I was just kind of digging into why. Why is this music so good? Because it was marketed as Mm bubblegum, but really it's not bubblegum. um, easy listening music, uh, soft rock, if you will, mm-hmm. of that era. And uh, here I come to find out, you know, that the greatest musicians on the planet who were playing on all these records at that time, I mean, Elvis and the Carpenters, you name it, they were playing on all these albums, were playing on the Partridge Family albums. Right. And, um same deal with the background vocalists. The real background vocalists were the top four session vocalists in Hollywood. And they were singing on all kinds of records. Uh, and not just records, but TV shows. They were pretty much the go-to vocalists um, for every record and every TV show that was uh, going on at that time. And here they were they were working on the Partridge Family albums. And what was really interesting is when I talked to them, all of them put the Partridge Family at the top of their most proud list. They hmm. just really felt like the, that it was they were well done and um, they were a big part of it because it was a group and uh, you know their records sold incredibly in the millions just millions and millions of dollars right. were made on the Partridge family oh yeah so I guess I'm going off on a tangent here a little uh, but so yeah I mean to go back and start where you left off I, I it's all started with a concert with David Cassidy that I booked uh, in Pennsylvania when I worked over there now how does one go about? Uh, booking David Cassidy. I mean, you're not a booking agent, so what uh, made well, you say, well, I, was, I can do this? <laughs> yeah, right. I was uh, the promoter at the theater. Okay. So um, the theater was a venue where they put on their own shows. The, mm-hmm. the community would come in and put on their own shows. And then the other facet to the theater was bringing in professional acts, concerts, uh, musicals, um, and I was um, 
I was the guy in charge of the whole theater. So it was up to me to bring those acts in and, you know, attempt to make money and fundraise for the theater. And uh, I had had at that point a pretty strong background in that. And um, so I knew what to do. And uh, I wanted to bring David Cassidy in because, well, first of all, I was a huge fan and it would be a dream come true. But from a business standpoint, it made an incredible amount of sense to do it. Um, so we set out probably nine months ahead of time, and I, because I was a fan, I went above and beyond in every facet of that concert and getting ready for it. And I think as a result of that, you know, the David Cassidy was extremely appreciative. And his band, too, you know, they told me nobody had ever gone out of their way like I had, hmm. and all of us had at the Parasivic Theater in bringing him in. So it, it sold out three weeks before we opened, and this is in 2009. Um, and... It just sort of laid the groundwork to work together again, and so it was shortly after that that I got the idea to do this book. Now, did you get to actually sit down and talk with David for a few minutes? Yeah, actually, um, that during that concert outing, uh, we we talked at great lengths when we were in the car, uh, going back and forth from the airport. There was a long ride in the car, and um, he was a terrific guy. You know, he he always tells people that, uh, you know, he's just a normal guy. And for those people who remember him and the fans who are still here loving it today, it's hard to see him as a normal guy. Danny Bonaducci always talks about that, how when he sees David Cassidy, he still stutters. Because to him, he, David Cassidy's like Elvis. You know, he's just godlike to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, But when you meet him and you spend time with him, you realize he's exactly who he keeps trying to tell us that he is, a normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, the people in our position... Uh, you know, it's hard for us to think that way. But So you had a chance to talk with uh, other members of the Partridge family. You know, you've mentioned you talked to the band and uh, the, yeah. the, the singers. But you also got to talk with, I believe you said in the book you started, one of your first people you got to talk with is Dave Madden, right? Yeah, right, yeah. And you make him sound like he's just, uh, he's another one of those that's, like he is on the screen. He's just a joke teller yeah. and wants to be funny all the time and everybody's friend. Oh, yeah, for sure. He was really easy to talk to. He just made you feel, you know, right instantly that, you know, that he knew you his whole life. And, you know, he would joke with you right out, right out of the get-go. He would uh, start talking and making jokes and yeah, just made you relax and feel real at home with him. Now, he's the one who put you in touch with Shirley Jones, right? No. Actually, uh, her husband, who her now deceased husband Marty Engels, um, put me in touch with Shirley. Okay. Uh, it was later that I talked with Dave. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. I got that a little backwards. I'm trying to remember everything that I read, and so. Uh, oh, I know. There's a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and now that you say that, I remember that you you did start out talking to him, and then uh, he said, "You know what, Shirley? You ought to talk to this guy." And so, uh, what? What was, uh, and I, I've, so far I'm reading um, uh, Foster, Brian Foster, is that his name? Oh, Brian Forster, yeah. Forster, yes. Uh, he has a lot to say. He seems like a pretty funny guy himself. Oh, yeah, he's terrific. Uh, he was a big supporter all the way through of the book. He spent a long time with me on the telephone. I think we spent, a, actually, maybe even talked a couple of times, a couple of hours for sure. He has a crystal clear memory of, you know, when you're a kid, too, I think those memories, they're, uh, 
we seem to remember a lot from our childhood. And, and his memories and Suzanne Crow also were both crystal clear, just very sharp, and a lot of great stories came out of them for the book. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, unfortunately, since, uh, since you wrote the book, uh, there's been a couple of people pass away, right? Yeah, Dave Madden, for one, mm-hmm. and Suzanne Crow, shockingly, at 52 years old, sat down on her couch one day and never got back up. Mm. Uh, it was really shocking. Um, Suzanne Crow was a big supporter. Also, I talked to her many times, and I really felt as though, you know, she was a sort of a friend. Uh, and so it was, and she's, you know, right around my age, so it was really shocking. It, it just, you know, it's hard to wrap your head around things like that when they happen. Yeah, and they, and unfortunately they didn't get to see the book be completed. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, that was a that was a big disappointment. Uh, she passed away about three days before I launched my Kickstarter campaign, mm-hmm. um, which was a big funding campaign that we did to support the book. Let's let's get into to the music. How did you make the connection to some of these background singers? And you know, you mentioned the musicians, which I'm familiar with because of, like you said, they played on everybody's stuff. They were known as the Wrecking Crew. A lot of these yeah. musicians: Hal Blaine, uh, Larry yeah. Nechel. Is that how you say his name? Larry Nechel. I Nechtel. think. Okay. Not hundred percent sure, but that's yeah. You know, like I like Johnny Rivers a lot growing up in the '60s, and I would always see those names uh, on, yeah. on the back of the album covers. And I, yeah. it, it was years before I realized, oh, this isn't Johnny Rivers' band. You know, because <laughs> it's also Dean Martin's band, and it's also this guy's right. band and this guy's band. So, yeah. Uh, how did you make that connection? Well, that's kind of interesting, too, because it was a whole different uh, parallel to making the connections. You know, the cast and the television show was sort of one side of it, so I spoke with Shirley Jones, and that would open the doors up, and then I'm talking to the rest of the cast and to the producers and, um, you know, some of the guest stars. But the other part of it happened uh, through, it was one of those through a friend of a friend of a friend kind of stories. I had a buddy in Cleveland who worked at a TV station that um, knew Denny Tedesco. Mm -hmm. uh, And Denny had recently made a film called The Wrecking Crew. Yep, I saw that. His father... Yeah, his father was the late, great Tommy Tedesco, yep. uh, one of the greatest guitar players who played on all those records. Mm-hmm. And he made this movie to kind of tell their story, and uh, the distributors wouldn't pick it up because of the expensive royalties involved in licensing the music. Mm. So he refused to cut the music because it was a documentary about the music, and he set out on his own to go around and raise the money to get a distribution on his film. And he did it for years and years. Uh, So this friend of mine in Cleveland introduced me to him, and we got to talking, and he had, you know, of course, a great relationship with all of these guys. Uh, So he connected me first to Hal Blaine, uh, who is one of the greatest drummers ever to play on, you know, of of that era to play on those records. Mm -hmm. Over, I think he played on over a thousand records. Um, Maybe maybe the number was even 5,000. Uh, when we talked. So he talked a lot about it um, and remembered the Partridge family well because they had to morph their sound to create a sound um, that 
the marketing image called for or whatever the promotional image was that they were trying to use. And that was their genius. The background vocalists, the same deal. Always, they were not just good singers and good musicians. They were so good that they could sort of, you know, morph into whatever type of sound that was needed. Uh, one of the great stories I love is Joe Osborne. Uh, he was a bass player mm-hmm. and played on the Partridge family. He would have been the Danny Bonaducci, mm-hmm. actually, uh, on the record. told me that the story about how one fan told him once, wow, I just realized that, um, that my, favorite, uh, my favorite bands are actually all the same bands. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just think that's kind of cool. They were just in uh, big demand. And so when I spoke with Hal Blaine, the next thing I know, he's connecting me to all the musicians. So then I talked to, you know, many of them. Mm-hmm. Max Bennett, um, bass player, uh, um, Louis Shelton, guitar player. He would have been one of the ones playing underneath David Cassidy. Even though David Cassidy, of course, can play the guitar mm-hmm. uh, on the records, uh, it was the Wrecking Crew actually playing. But David was talented and would go out. You know, he started, he launched his whole solo career, and, you know, he could play and sing. And he went out and, of course, you know, all this time later has proven himself as a real legitimate musician and singer-songwriter. I'm sleeping and right in the middle of a good dream. Like all at once I wake up from something that keeps knocking at my brain. Before I go insane, I hold my pillow to my head and spring up in my bed, screaming out the words I dread. I think I love you. This morning. Let's talk about some of the myths. And and when I say this, I mean some things that I thought was true until, uh, well, one, for your book. And from reading your book, rather, and then two from uh, from uh, uh, well, we'll get into that. But uh, first off, the Partridge family never tried to perceive the fact that they were not really a band, uh, unlike the Monkees, yeah. which yeah. of course they tried to you know portray themselves as a band, and in, in of course it goes it depends on how you look at it. You know, whether yeah. or not that they actually were or not. They had to do some fighting, but, you know, it was like three albums in before they were actually playing their instruments. But yeah. the Partridge yeah. family, like Shirley Jones had said, I saw in an interview once, she said people were coming up to her and saying, hey, you guys ought to go on the road. And she said, we're not really a band, and we're not really trying to make people believe we are. It's just a TV show, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, uh, and, you know, uh, Paul Witt, who was one of the producers on the show, talked about that, and... Um, I also wrote in the book about how the credits were vague uh, when it came to the background vocalists. In the very beginning, they were trying to cover it up a little bit, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, they were trying to launch something. So once it launched, what they didn't see coming was that David Cassidy could really sing. So it just added legitimacy to what they were doing. And they already had Shirley Jones, who everyone knew and respected as a singer and an actress. So with that double package going on, um, you know, I think that that was enough yeah. uh, to give them a sort of credibility um, compared to what it might have been had nobody really sang. Yeah. Um, and so I think that makes it more forgiving if somebody was going to make judgment on the fact that they lip-synced, which nobody really did. In fact, the marketing image was so strong that people wanted it to be real, even though 
nobody was, you know, like Shirley Jones continually said, that you don't understand there's not really a Partridge family. Right. That image was so strong and, and it was so likable uh, that people just held on to it. I think that's why it's so popular uh, as a nostalgia kind of thing, because it was so good at what it did. Yeah. Uh, the next myth is I had heard for years and years and years that uh, this was supposed to be a story about the cow seals. When in actuality, yeah. I didn't realize until your book that that's not exactly the correct story, right? Right. No. And it's easy to see how that that idea sort of came about because the influence was definitely there. But like most everything else in life, it's got a complicated answer. It's not just, boom, the Partridge family is based on the cow sills. Um, Bernard Slade, the producer set out to, um, I'm sorry, the creator, mm-hmm. set out to write um, a pilot, and he was contracted to write three of them a year for Screen Gems, and he always wanted to write something about a family that sang together. And it started with something he did in Canada early on in his career, a variety show called The Big Coin Sound. Then the next thing was The Sound of Music that came along, and that just sort of, you know, that got him thinking about it again. And the trigger for him to sit down and actually start writing was seeing the cow sills on The Tonight Show. And the thing that grabbed him was that not only was were they a family that sang together and performed together, but they made records. So, boom, you put those three together, and he's got his idea for the pilot, and what happened was the studio networks, uh, the studios and the networks saw potential there. They were looking, of course, for ways to market this idea and you know, told the producers, go visit the cow sills. We want you to go visit the real cow sills. Well, the producers were kind of, I think they were a bit reluctant because they knew that these guys, the cow sills, were not actors. But they went and they got some footage of them on tape and they came back and, you know, the networks agreed with them and said, yeah, this is, that won't work. They were great singers um, and they did like the little girl, but they didn't feel they could use anybody else. So... They scrapped the idea and uh, went on with their original plan, which was to hire actors and lip sync. Uh, It was just sort of like a golden gem of a thing that David Cassidy could sing, and not only sing, but sing really well. Right. Uh, And, and, you know, he became the biggest teen idol of all time because of that. You know, in full disclosure to the listener, I haven't finished the book. I'm about a third of the way into it, which I told you before we started recording. Yeah. And uh, that might uh, be to my advantage because now I'm going to start asking you questions that these aren't set-up questions. These are questions I'm genuinely <laughs> yeah, interested right. in. So, uh, yeah. One thing before I get into all of that, though, is uh, in the book, you talk to... We've established that you talk to uh, the musicians, you've talked to the actors, uh, most of them, and then you've also talked with the writers of some of these songs. Yeah. And it's amazing the catalog, the the stable of writers that were writing songs for, for this show. Yes, it is very amazing. And that was the driving force behind my book. Uh, I really wanted to show the world the musicians and the singers and the songwriters who worked on this music um, because it is just some of the greatest music of that era and it's clouded over by its marketing image. Funny, you know, the very marketing image that they needed to sell it did its job, but then when you you kind of want to get rid of it because the music is standing on its own, it's, you know, it's difficult to do that. Uh, 
But that music is so well done, and the reason why is because they had the greatest uh, people working in every facet of it. The songwriters, especially, were... um, There were so many of them. Um, And they were, again, they were some of the greatest writers of that era. The Partridge family recorded songs by Mike Appel and Jim Credicos, Mm -hmm. who at the time were just discovering Bruce Springsteen and beginning to produce Springsteen. Um, The Partridge family recorded songs by Cashman and West, Mm -hmm. uh, and they were writing, Cashman and West were writing specifically for David Cassidy and the Partridge family. At the same time, they were producing Jim Croce. Right. and uh, there were others, Bobby Hart. Of course, everybody knows him from The Monkees. He yeah. produced The Monkees, him and Tommy Boyce. Bobby Hart actually wrote more songs for the Partridge family than anybody else did. Uh, he was a phenomenal, phenomenal writer. Sure. Um, Mark James, um, who's famous for writing Elvis's Suspicious Mind. Suspicious Mind, yeah. Uh, yeah, you I'm were sorry. always on my mind. Yeah, yeah uh, he uh, he wrote for the Partridge Family. Yeah. yeah, and I'm a big Elvis fan, so I know I knew that name immediately when I read. I didn't know he wrote for Partridge Family, but then he also, yeah, I think he also wrote. Um, oh man, forget! I had three songs in my head as soon as you said his name. One of them was uh, I want to say either Moody Blue or Way Down for Elvis, and then. Oh. But uh, yeah. yeah, he wrote three or four uh, big hits for Elvis. And, uh, and speaking of Elvis, by the way, and we're talking about the writers. You know, when it came to Elvis movies, they had their own writers that, for these movies, and they would say, "All right, Elvis is going to be on a motorcycle right here. Write a song about Elvis riding a motorcycle." So the writers would do that. All right, now Elvis is on a Ferris wheel. Somebody write a song about a Ferris wheel, and they would do that. Partridge Family only was like that in the very beginning, where maybe they wrote for situations. Otherwise, these were legitimate writers uh, submitting, uh, you know, real songs, so to speak, not situation songs, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, you're right on the money. Um, In the beginning, uh, Wes Farrell was the record producer, and he knew what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, But they refined their approach as they moved through it. And so in the beginning, uh, they would read scripts and try to come up with songs for the stories and the shows. But as time moved forward, they really focused on developing the sound. So by the third album, they went in there writing music for music and then fitting the songs into the episodes where they would fit appropriately. Uh, But by then, the music was so successful. And, um, you know, what I find interesting is that the ratings for the TV show were solid, but they never matched uh, the the kind of ratings that the music had. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think in the beginning, their idea was to sort of enhance the show with the music, Mm -hmm. but as the show rolled along and the record sold, every week you were tuning in, waiting to see what they were going to sing. Is it going to be a new song? Is it going to be one that's on the album I just bought? Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, I love this song. I wonder, you know, if this one's going to be on the next album. And that kind of became the the anticipation for all of the fans. Yeah. Uh, You know, in speaking of the writers, uh, a little bit more to our listeners, there are some other names that they're going to recognize that they didn't realize they were writers, maybe like Paul Anka, uh, Carol King, uh, also Rupert Holmes. Literally, uh, the last thing I read before we did this interview, I'm reading about Echo Valley 26809, which is one of my favorites, and I also learned it was a fan favorite, which could have been a huge single if they had released it as a single, I believe. But yes. you know, Rupert Holmes, everybody knows him as the Pina Colada 
uh, right. uh, the escape song, you know. So yeah. uh, those are these are big names as singers that our listeners yeah. are going to know about, but ha- probably have no idea that they were actually writing hit songs for others, including the Partridge Family. Just, yeah. just amazing that the, they were all in there and trying to submit songs to to what as you you know as you've already covered is pre, uh, perceived as bubblegum rock, but really it was you know it was it was good music. Yeah, it was. It, it's it's easy listening music yeah. or or soft rock of that era, and if you listen to it and mix it with other uh, artists of that genre. And, and you don't know it's the Partridge Family, it blends right in, and you think, who is that? Yeah. Uh, but the minute you say Partridge Family, back comes the teeny bopper image. Right, the preconceived notion. Yeah. We'll be back with more of our interview right after this. This is Donald James from Impact Youth Mentoring. Impact Youth Mentoring serves the children of Hendricks County. Impact Youth provides academic and social development in our mentees as well as leadership development in our mentors. If you are interested in becoming a mentor or know a child who could use a mentor, learn more by searching Impact Youth Mentoring on Facebook or at our website, impactyouthmentoring.org. Tomorrow night, part two of my interview with John Ray Miller, the author of When We're Singing, all about the Partridge family, right here on the Kevin Kersey Agency presents Central Indiana Today. This has been Central Indiana Today, presented by the Kevin Kersey Agency on WYRZ. Hello, this is Kevin Kersey of the Kevin Kersey Agency. The Kevin Kersey Insurance Agency, a member of the Farmers Insurance Group, can help with home, life, auto, or business needs. Phone number is 317-286-3481. We can also be found on Facebook at the Kevin Kersey Agency or at our website, www.farmersagent.com forward slash kkersey. Walk-ins are always welcome at 480 East Northfield Drive, Suite 300 in Brownsburg.